Well, good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew, and I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. Go ahead and grab your Bible and go to Genesis chapter 1. Maybe you're here this morning with us, and you've been hurt by the church, or uh, you've, you've kind of, maybe this is the first time back in a long time, and you've got questions. There's some things about Jesus and Christianity that you struggle with. We just want to say welcome to you, and there's nothing that you could ask that's off limits, and we're really glad that you're here. Uh, pastoral ministry has just about killed me on numerous occasions. Uh, some of you know this, but when I was 21 years old, uh, there's a small Bible study that I was helping lead alongside of a few other friends, and, uh, and then I met my wife. We got married. Two weeks after we got married, we launched that Bible study as a church. So if you ever want to start your marriage out on the right foot with not a lot of stress or anxiety, then just plant a church two weeks after you get married. Uh, that was really, really brilliant. So that's what I did. And uh, the first year was really, really hard, but really fun. I mean, it's almost like church planning is like starting a new business meets World War III, and it's just all this chaos and beauty mixed together. So the first year was really hard, but really fun. Second year was really, really hard, but still fun. And then the third year is just really hard. And it became exhausting to me. It became really, really complicated. And then this church plant that uh, about year five going into year six, uh, that church plant eventually merged with Frontline, which is how I joined the team here. So I went from pastoring a church on, on its best days of about 250 people to helping pastor and lead a church of about 2,500 people overnight. And I was 26 years old, 27 years old at the time, I can't remember, and didn't know what I was doing. And the stress level went up, the anxiety level went up, the complexity of ministry and life and church and trying to figure out how to lead at that level went up. And all of it ended up being felt, not just in my calendar, but it began to seep past my calendar into my soul. And it began to seep past my soul into my family, and my wife and my kids were getting second best. And if you could just insert truth serum into me, like inject me with truth serum, almost at any point over the last 11 years of pastoral ministry, I would have told you that I was on the edge of a nervous breakdown. It was more work than I knew how to do. It was more complicated. It was so much more difficult. I mean, I think the, the, the image that we have of pastors and the joke that often runs around is like, oh, you're the guy that like golfs for six days a week and then you show up and preach, you know? Um, but like the pastors that I know are some of the most uh, overworked, <laughs> underpaid, depressed, anxious people that I've ever met. Um, and, and so this is just the reality of what my life was. And part of the problem for me was that I just loved my job. The other part of the problem was that my dad had instilled in me a hard work ethic. So I loved to work hard, and I kind of hated the idea of laziness. So I was a hard worker. I was a workaholic by nature. That was what my dad modeled for me growing up. And this is what's hard about being a workaholic in our culture today. It's not seen as a sin. In fact, it's not only not seen as a sin, it's actually seen as like, an, a, a, like a, a beautiful ethic that we should all strive to be and do. Right? We just have this value in our culture, this virtue of being a workaholic. Uh, think about a time when you've talked to somebody, maybe you see somebody at a coffee shop or in the city somewhere, and you're like, hey, how are you? I'm good, but I'm good, but busy. That's the, the common response that we give. Um, even if it's not true, like, uh, no one's going to say, oh, man, I'm just really bored. Like, I don't have a lot to do. I just sit at home in my sweatpants and binge watch Netflix all the time, and I don't have a life that does anything of value or significance whatsoever. I'm really lazy. Like, even if that does describe your life, you're going to be like, oh, I'm good, but busy, right? Because it's a virtue in our culture to be busy. It's become a moniker for, I'm important, I promise. People need me. I, I, I'm a big deal. I'm cool. I'm, I'm in high demand. I'm good, 
but I'm busy. What, what are we busy with as a culture? Well, there's a lot of ways we can answer that. Two weeks ago, we talked about work, and that's one of the things that as a culture we're really busy with. If you look at uh, Americans, the average 40-hour work week is a thing of, of the past. 86% of Americans work over 45 hours a week on average. We work more industrial hours as a nation in a year time than any other nation on the planet. The Japanese have a word, karoshi, that literally means death by overwork. The first case was in 1969. A 29-year-old Japanese man fell dead, and they kind of did an autopsy on him, and they, they just said, yeah, karoshi, he died of overworking. And it's been an epidemic in Japan ever since, and yet we work, on average, 137 hours more per year than the Japanese. So we're busy as a culture with work. But we're also busy with play. Because not only do we fill our calendars to the brim with work, but any margin that we have left in our calendars past work is over, we begin to fill with play. So it's, what are we going to do on the weekend? And what restaurant are we going to try? And when are we going to have the friends over? And every night, every night, every night, every night, let's go do this and do that. Let's go do the game night and let's have this and do this. And we fill our lives with crazy amounts of work and crazy amounts of play. And I read this quote from Dallas Willard. I've been reading a lot of Dallas Willard lately. And this just kind of hit me between the eyes. He said this. He said, busy is the greatest enemy of spiritual life. If you're a follower of Jesus, and not all of you are, and that's okay, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you just need to know that not only are there overt sins that are crouching at your door to kind of overtake your life and uh, ruin, in many ways, the, the good work that Jesus wants to do in you, but busyness is this kind of covert thing that is creeping in inside of your heart, your family, your culture, that sometimes we don't even see or realize. Busy is the greatest enemy of spiritual life. And this described my life not long ago. I mean, it wasn't long ago where it was just rapid pace, rapid pace, rapid pace. And what I would do is I would kind of frenetically go, 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 and then crash. Go, 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 have a day off. Go, 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 and then crash again. But it wasn't really changing what was happening on the depth of my soul. Until recently, my brother-in-law, is one of my best friends, sent me a sermon on the Sabbath. Do you ever have people do that to you? Or like, hey, I just read this book on humility. I thought of you. You should read it, right? Thanks for that. What is that? Hey, I heard this sermon on the Sabbath. I thought of you. You should listen to it. And for whatever reason, I was just like absorbing the shame of that moment. I was like, yeah, I probably do need that. So I listened to the sermon. It's by John Mark Comer. And it it completely changed my perspective and life in regards to the Sabbath. Completely changed my view of working and of resting. And so here's what we're doing today. Maybe my story doesn't necessarily line up with the details of your life, but maybe the felt reality does. Maybe the felt reality of busyness, whether it's work or play or whatever, has, has seeped not just into your calendar, but into your very soul. Today, we're wrapping up our series Rooted by talking about being rooted in Sabbath rest. Now, next week, what we're going to talk about is a 14-week sermon series we're kicking off next week on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we brilliantly titled it The Sermon on the Mount, uh, that was like our design team. We had a meeting. It was fantastic. Uh, so com- coming up, we're going to study uh, not just the, the, li- the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but the historic teachings of Jesus that have radically changed the world. So that's coming up next week. Bring your friends, family. I'm very, very excited to kick this off. I think we're going to grow our church by shrinking our church probably, but it'll be really, really good. Today, we finish up Rooted by talking about being rooted in rest. So uh, I want to just, from the get-go, as you're turning to Genesis chapter 1, I just want to honor and give thanks to John Mark Comer. Uh, Virtually 
everything that I understand about this topic originally came from him. And in, in addition to that, I want to highly recommend this book, Subversive Sabbath by A.J. Swoboda. It's called The Surprising Power of Rest in a Nonstop World. Subversive Sabbath. It's the best book on Sabbath that I've read, and I've read a few now. And it's excellent because it's theologically rich, giving you a foundation, but very, very practical. Highly encourage you to buy this book. And everything I got from John Mark Comer, John Mark Comer got from him. So it's really good. So here we go. Genesis chapter 1. Look at the very first verse in the chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Fast forward to the very last verse in the first chapter. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. We have some, some voices being read, scriptures, that's awesome. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So think about day one, or think about chapter one of the Bible. It's a busy day for God, right? He's creating all of creation. And no matter how you read the days of Genesis, whether they're literal 24-hour days or more of the day-age theory, that's kind of irrelevant. The idea is chapter one, God is hard at work creating all things. He's designing, he's orchestrating, he's taking chaos, and he's bringing it into order, and he's creating beauty, he's creating all things. But then there's this twist, this unexpected plot line twist in the story in Genesis is chapter 2. So go to chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. All right, just look up here. I want you to let this sink in for just a minute. God rested on the seventh day. God rested. Some of you already, like your guard is up. You're like, yeah, but I'm really busy, and I've got a hard job, and God rested. Well, but I'm type A, and you know, it's just I've got little kids. God rested. He created all things in six days, and yet on the seventh day, God rested. That word rest in Hebrew is Shabbat. It's where we get our word Sabbath. Sometimes even in Jewish communities today, they'll greet each other with that greeting, Shabbat Shalom, right? It's, it means Sabbath peace to you. And, and, and so this idea isn't that God like was busy, hard at work, creating all things, you know, six days going, 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 and then just crashed on the seventh day. It was like, I've got to take a break. I need to sip some lemonade and just chill out for a little bit and, and, and cease from my labor. No, that's not the idea here. This idea of Shabbat or Sabbath, rest, this idea of ceasing is this literal concept of stopping your work. It's not that your work's all done. It's not there's, that there's nothing else to do. It's that you just decide to slow down, to stop, to cease, and to be done. It's the idea of like, you know when you mow your lawn, for those of you that actually enjoy it like I do, you mow your lawn, you're working out in the garden, and then like after a hard day's worth of work in the yard, you kind of like pause and you stand back and you look at it and you go, man, that's really good. That's really good. It's a day of delight. That's the idea of Sabbath. God creates all things. He steps back and he looks at it and he goes, that's really good. I'm going to enjoy this. It's a day for enjoyment and celebration. It's a day for delight. And it's interesting, isn't it, that God actually built us in the fabric of creation itself. You can get on an airplane and fly to any culture in the world. It doesn't matter where you go. Every culture operates off of a seven-day week. And the idea that God instituted here is the, this idea of six days we work, one day we cease from working. We Shabbat, we Sabbath, we rest. So Sabbath, what is it? Well, it's a day of delight. It's a day 
of celebration. For me, Sabbath is a day where I cease from all of my labor. Sabbath is a day where for a 24-hour period, I don't have a to-do list, and I don't feel any shame about that. Sabbath is a day where I shut off all my devices. I put my phone on do not disturb with an automatic reply that lets people know that I am unavailable. And I don't care who you are, you can't get in touch with me. And I open up myself fully to my family, fully to, fully to my wife, fully to my kids, and fully to God. It's a day where we eat crazy amounts of food, like all the diets are thrown out the window. It's a day where we sleep in. It's a day where I take a nap and I don't feel bad about it. It's a day where I read and watch my kids play. Sabbath for us is a day of celebration and it's a day of delight. It's a day of enjoyment, not this harsh thing that we're supposed to do just to make God happy. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but there are two important things in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 that you need to see. There's, there's two things that happen that I think, if you get this, will help us understand as we kind of put together and paint this picture of what the Sabbath is. So here's the first thing that happened in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God blessed the seventh day. He blessed the seventh day. Now, that's a big deal because if you follow through the story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and you read along, what you're going to realize is that God actually blessed three things, just three things in Genesis 1 and 2. The first thing he blesses are animals. So God comes to animals and he says, hey, you're blessed. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with life. Then he comes to humans and he says, hey, you're blessed. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with life. And then, really bizarrely, he comes to a day, to time, and he says, this is blessed. And the idea here is that the Sabbath day has something about it that actually has this life-giving ability to fill us up with more life. Just like animals and people are, are producing life and filling the earth, Sabbath as a day is this gift, this, this thing that God has done where he's blessed it in such a way that it fills us up with more life. And you instinctively know this to be true. Like, do you know the feeling after a, a hard week of work where you've just put in a lot of labor and a lot of toil and a lot of effort, and even if you love your job to death, which is like four of you, even if you love your job, there's something about it, by the, by the time you get to the end, you're just kind of exhausted and your, your creative margin is low, your ability to bring your whole self to your job is low, and you just kind of need a break, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? I love my job, but I feel this. It's almost like a cell phone charger. Like, have you ever forgotten to charge your phone overnight or you thought it was plugged in and it wasn't? And then you wake up and you're, you've got like 12%. So all day you're scrounging just to plug it in, you know, 10 minutes here, 5 minutes there, 12 minutes there, trying to plug it in. Well, imagine doing that for a week where you never fully charge your phone overnight and get it all the way up to 100. You're living in the red. That describes the culture that you and I live in in the West. We're all just kind of like resting and taking naps here and there, but we're not actually working six days and then ceasing from all of our work so we never get to 100%. God blessed the seventh day. That's the first thing you need to see. Here's the second thing you need to see. God made the seventh day holy. He made it holy. Uh, Jewish rabbis have this way that they read scripture. Uh, it's a hermeneutical concept. So uh, the way that they approach scripture, and it's called the principle of first mention. Here's the idea here. The idea is anytime in the Bible a word is mentioned for the first time or a phrase is mentioned for the first time, then that sets up a definition of how you and I should read that word or phrase throughout the rest of scripture. Now, I don't know if that's right. That's a long-term, long-time held tradition among Jewish rabbis. I don't know if that's right, but I think they may be on to something here. And what's interesting about this is that actually the, the very first thing that's called holy in the Bible is not a space or a location, but time. 
Now think about that. Time, like not a space, not a location, time. In the ancient Near East, that would have blown people's minds because the only thing they considered holy in the ancient Eastern context was locations, like you had a holy mountain or a holy temple or a holy whatever. And yet what happens here is this really bizarre thing where God doesn't create a holy mountain. He doesn't create a holy garden of Eden. He creates a holy day. And Abraham Joshua Heschel, a Jewish rabbi who wrote a really good but really weird and strange book on the Sabbath, uh, had some good things in it. He said, the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. The Sabbath is the presence of God in the world, open to the soul of man. God is not in things of space, but in moments of time. So the idea here is that God actually, he blesses this day to give it life, and then he calls it holy, and he's saying the way that you meet with me in a unique way, the way that you encounter my presence in a powerful way is actually in spaces of time called the Sabbath. This is really interesting. Creator God steps in, and the very first page of the whole story of the Bible, he works for six days and rests one, setting up this pattern for you and I to walk in. And here's the crazy thing. When we don't do this, when we reject God's design and the way that he set up the fabric of time to work, when we actually decide to work as much as we want and never rest or rest as much as we want and never work, when we decide to throw off this, it has a profound impact on our lives, on our families, has a profound impact even on our relationship with God. In fact, studies have shown that uh, in 1793, actually, France, uh, to reduce uh, cost and to actually increase productivity, they moved from a seven-day week to a 10-day week. And they were actually not giving people days off. So 10 days worth a week, and that was how they set it up, 1793. And what was happening is people were dying left and right. The suicide rate increased dramatically. People were, like, completely falling over and couldn't do their jobs. So France just, like, it was a short-lived experiment that failed. Because, as H.H. Farmer said, anytime you go against the grain of the universe, you are going to get splinters, right? So when you and I fail to Sabbath, we become emotionally unhealthy, we become fatigued, exhausted, facing burnout, stress. It affects our body. It affects our immune system. Our creativity drops. Our margin for what matters most uh, begins to dissipate. And all of a sudden, we become slaves to everything else, and we lose who we really are in Jesus. This is the effect of rejecting the Sabbath, which, by the way, let me transition, is why I think Sabbath moves from this gift that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 to later on being a command that God begins to institute with his people. So if you have your Bible, turn to Exodus 16. Exodus 16, so Genesis, Exodus, the next book over. And if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We're gonna have the words up on the screen. But uh, here, here's, here's, let me paint the picture while you're turning there. Uh, the people of Israel had been redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, right? So for 400 years, they're slaves in Egypt under the cruel, harsh taskmasters, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, working nonstop night and day. God comes to the people of Israel and he redeems them out of Egypt. He brings them across the Red Sea and they're traveling through the desert, through the wilderness, on their way to the promised land. Now this is before Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, if you're not familiar, that's where God gives the Ten Commandments, the law, where he begins to shape and form his people in a unique identity in the world. This is before all of that. And the people of Israel are doing what they do best. They're complaining about everything. If you ever read the Old Testament, like one of the ways you could sum it up is the people of Israel complaining about everything. And so they're whining and they're, they're like, hey, do you remember how awesome it was when we were slaves in Egypt? And literally they're saying things like when we sat by pots of meat 
It's like, what, you know how we remember things better than they are? Like, that's a classic story for them. Like, they didn't sit by pots of meat. They were slaves in Egypt being cruelly worked to death. And yet they're complaining, like, where's our food? Where's our meat? God brought us out here to kill us. And in the middle of all of this, this story happens in Exodus 16. Look at verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the, the Lord appeared in a cloud. Imagine this. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. That's actually kind of funny because the word manna literally means what is it. So they're like, manna. And then they ended up calling it that. And I'm glad you laughed because I thought that was funny. So like manna, right? And that's how it got its name. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can. You shall each take an omer, that's a unit measurement, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some, some more, some less. Verse 21, look at 21. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. How bizarre. Look at verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. Why? And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. Now, the thing I want you to see in that whole story is this concept of like, they're gathering manna for six days, and then on the seventh day, God says, don't do that. Gather as much as you need so that you don't have to go work for anything. You don't have to go out of your tent. And he says, I want the seventh day to be a holy day set apart for the Lord. The Sabbath is a holy day. That idea of holiness is actually to like dedicate something specifically for a purpose. So what God is saying here is, listen, the idea of the Sabbath, it's not just God saying, hey, you know what, you've worked really hard, your life is crazy busy, why don't you just slow down? You don't need to work all the time. It's okay to rest and slow down and take a nap. Just take a day off. That's not all of the story. That's not what's happening here. What God is doing at the Sabbath is he's saying, I want you to have a day of rest and a day of worship. This is a day set apart as holy to the Lord. This is not just a day off, just to sleep in and go see a movie and do whatever. This is a day of rest and a day of worship. You see, a day off is only half of the conversation. A day off is a very different thing than a Sabbath. Some of you are like, oh yeah, I do a day off. But what do you do on your day off? Chances are, a lot of us on our day off, it's like, oh, you know what I haven't done? I've got a lot of mail I've got to get catched up on. I've got to do my budget. I've got to run this errand. Oh, I need to go to the store and buy this thing. And I want to go shopping for that one thing that I saw. And I'm going to go buy this and get all the groceries and do this and clean our house. And, and then I'm going to watch a movie and I'm going to relax. Some of you on your day off, you're like, I'm going to binge watch Netflix all day long, right? No, it's just me on my day off. Okay, so um, whatever it is for you, you have your thing that you do. That's a day off. It's a day of not working for your employer, but often working in other ways. 
That's not a Sabbath. A Sabbath is a day of rest and a day of worship. In fact, I want to give you this grid. The grid that my family and I send everything through on Sabbath, which for us is Friday night to Saturday night, is, is this rest and is this worship? And if the answer to both questions is yes, then we're like, heck yes, we're doing it. If the answer to one of them is yes and the other's like, eh, maybe, but not really, then we're not. We just won't do it because there's six other days for that. It's not that it's bad to do those things. It's just there are six other days. The day of Sabbath is a day of rest, and it's a day of worship. Now, if that sounds hard to you, like imagine instituting this in your own family rhythm or personal life or with your roommates or whatever. Like if this sounds complicated and hard for you, and you're like, oh, how am I ever going to get to the place where I could do an entire 24-hour day of rest and of worship? You are not alone in that struggle of that being difficult. In fact, this story, I want to read you the, the next part. This story reveals that the culture of Egypt had seeped into the people of Israel's soul, so much so that the thought of resting was just not natural to them. Look at this. Look at verse uh, 24 in chapter 16. So they laid the man aside till morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. That's always nice. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So do you hear God? He's saying, I'm going to hook you up for six days. You'll get it, and then you'll have all that you need for the weekend. Don't go out on the seventh day. Now look at what happens in verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they found none. Yeah, dummies, because God just told you that you're not going to find any. And the Lord said to Moses, how long, I love how Moses is always getting in trouble, right, for the people. How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place, please. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Do you see God and his patience and his kindness and his generosity? He's like, hey guys, you were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, working night and day with no pay, constantly just being driven and being driven and being driven. I want you to not be like that anymore. I want you to work hard for six days, and I want you to rest and worship one. This is a gift. In fact, the phrase that needs to stick out about that passage is verse 29. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. God is trying to give us a gift with the Sabbath. He's not giving us a harsh command. Hey, do this and be better and try harder. And Here's how you're in my love. He's saying, hey, this is how I've created human flourishing to work. Work six days, rest one. Now, uh, some of you in the room are, are uh, kind of theologically oriented and uh, kind of nerdy, and like four of you, and you're asking, okay, well, what about, you know, is the, you know, you're pushing up your glasses, like, is the Sabbath still a binding command on Christians? So the whole time I'm talking, you're like, what's he gonna say about that, right? And that's kind of the, um, and you haven't really been listening. So, uh, so, so if that's you, if you're asking, like, is this still a binding command on Christians? Most theologians will say, no, it's not. Like, when Jesus came, he kind of set us free from some of the law, so this isn't something that we have to do. It's not binding, They'll, they'll point out how out of the Ten Commandments, this is the only Ten Commandment that doesn't show up in the New Testament. Others will say that's an argument from silence. Just because it doesn't show up in the New Testament doesn't mean it's still not a Ten Commandment, right? You know, no one's walking around arguing like, well, now that Jesus showed up, I guess adultery's okay, and we can just steal and pillage whatever we want. 
No, we like actually realize the Ten Commandments are basic, intelligent, normal morality, right? And I want to argue that actually the Sabbath predates the Torah, the giving of the law. It's the first page of your Bible, right? God did it. It's a big deal. In fact, if you look at all the scripture and you look at the way that it's spoken about in the Old Testament specifically, here's the fascinating thing. It's eternal covenant language that's used over and over and over again. And it's a big deal to God. Let me give you one example. Exodus 31, 16. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations. How long? As a covenant forever. I mean, I don't know. That sounds like a long time. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And I love this. Look at this carefully. And on the seventh day, God rested and was refreshed. That just takes your theology and it's like, God rested and was refreshed. So maybe you don't need what God did. I get it, right? But God rested and was refreshed. It's a powerful thing. So in my opinion, the Sabbath is a binding command for Christians. This is a gift that he gave. And even if you don't want to say that it's a binding command, I think it's impossible to argue against the fact that this is a gift that God has given. And it's just wisdom. It's just wisdom. Have you ever noticed there's no command in Scripture that's like, thou shalt not drink 37 cups of coffee a day? No, I mean, you can do that if you want to, but you will be on the kidney transplant list in a matter of years. You'll be stressed out and anxious. There's no command that says you have to sleep more than four hours a night, but it's just basic wisdom, and you're kind of dumb to not get more than four hours of sleep a night if you have the option to, right? This is basic wisdom, and yet, tragically, this has been a neglected gift by most Christians for at least about the last 100 years or so. If you go beyond 100 years, you're going to see all these theologians and pastors and reformers talking about it everywhere throughout almost 2,000 years of a tradition of Christians keeping the Sabbath. And about the last 100 plus years, a little bit more than that, people in the West have just completely neglected the Sabbath. In fact, just raise your hands if this is the, uh, unless you were at the training, if this is the first time you've ever heard a sermon on the Sabbath, just raise your hands, like first time I've ever heard a sermon on the Sabbath. Oh wow, I'm shocked. I'm surprised there's not more of you. Um, but for many of us, it's like we've never even heard about this before. Why is that? Well, I think a few reasons. One, it's just really un-American to work hard for six days and rest one, isn't it? It's un-American. I mean, we are masters at work. And we're masters at play. We invented the weekend. Literally, we invented the weekend. And it's, we're great at it. And yet the second thing, I think, why this has been neglected is because we often misread the teachings of Jesus. So last place I want you to go in your Bibles, head over to Mark chapter 2. Mark 2. Some of you are like, oh, I'm so ready to not have to turn to all these different, well, Sermon on the Mount, 14 weeks. You will literally not have to turn a page for several weeks. Mark chapter 2. I think one of the things that happens is we misread the teaching of Jesus on the Sabbath. For Jesus, the Sabbath was a day to get into trouble, right? If you look at the, the stories of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these accounts, these different camera angles of the life of Jesus, he's always getting into trouble on the Sabbath day. Here's one example, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. They're snacking. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Right? So these religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're watching this happen. And they're like, why are, the, why are they 
eating on the Sabbath or picking heads of grain. You're not supposed to pick heads of grain on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest and worship. And what's so fascinating is if you actually read carefully through the law, what you're going to find is it never says that you're not allowed to snack on the Sabbath. It just says that you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do any work of any kind on the Sabbath. Now, here's what's hard about that. Defining work is not as easy as it might sound, is it? Like, how do we actually define what work is? We're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. Well, what exactly is work? Like, is cooking dinner work? Well, for some of you it might be work, but for me, cooking dinner might be, might be the most restful and worshipful thing I get to do. Uh, is, what about cleaning up after your meal and doing the dishes? Is that work? Well, I don't know. I mean, what about going to the gym? Like, some of you love to go to the gym. Other people, obviously like me, don't like to go to the gym, right? So like, is going to the gym, can you run, run for a jog on the Sabbath? Is that allowed? Well, it becomes really, really hard once you actually try to define what is work and what is rest because that's different in many ways for all of us. What might be rest for you might be work for me and vice versa. So here's what the Pharisees did. Specifically, the religious leaders prior to Jesus' day, over time, those rabbis built in what they called building a fence around the law. So here's the law, don't do any work of any kind. Now they built fences around that law. They're like, well, just to make sure that we don't cross that boundary, we're also going to say you can't travel more than X amount of distance on the Sabbath. You can't, you know, carry X amount of weight on the Sabbath. You can't do X amount of duties on the Sabbath. Like it's, it became this thing where they're building this fence around the law trying to say, how do we make sure that we don't cross that barrier? And over time what began to happen is more laws were added, and more laws are added, and more laws are added, and more laws are added. Some of you are like, that reminds me of my childhood growing up, right? That's what it was. It was like all these crazy, ridiculous, nuanced laws, all so that we won't break this one. So think about this. As Jesus enters the scene in the first century, in this culture, it's a culture of legalism. It's a culture overrun by laws where they had somehow forgotten the plot line. Instead of seeing this just as a gift that God had given, they totally missed the point. And so Jesus is always facing this. Look at what he says in verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did, King David, when he was in need and was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. This really bizarre, weird story. And then look at what he says. He says in verse 27, He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The number one thing this culture needed to hear in the first century was the second part of that sentence. You were not made for the Sabbath. Now, now look at me. What I want to argue is that what our culture today desperately needs to hear is not so much the second part of that sentence, although that's true, but we need to desperately hear the first part of the sentence. The Sabbath was made for man. Jesus said that. The Sabbath was made for man. This is a gift. We don't live in a culture that's surrounded by legalistic crazy laws around the Sabbath. We have no rules. We have no laws. We're free to do whatever we want to do, and yet our anxiety levels up, our stress is up, our you know, disintegration of the soul is happening all around us. It's fracturing our family dynamics. We're unable to even open ourselves up fully to God and fully to each other. Why would we think this is not a gift that we should receive and that we should embrace? It's something God gave 
to us. Sabbath was made for man. We need the Sabbath more than ever as a culture. Can I just say this? This is like a transition into what we're going to be studying the next 14 weeks. Do you know the last thing that American culture needs right now? The last thing they need from the church is more cool Christians who look just like them and do all the same things that they do and literally there's no difference whatsoever. That is the last thing that the world needs. You know what the world needs right now? They need to see Christians that actually look different than the world. And why don't we start with this amazing, profound gift. It's like God saying, hey, just once a week, I want you to have a Christmas party without all the stress and anxiety. Just once a week. Why would you say no to that? What would it look like if you're like, no, sorry, I can't do that because today's my Sabbath. No, sorry, I can't go there because today's my Sabbath. What's that? It's a day that I open myself up fully to God to rest and to worship. That says something profound to a culture that doesn't know how to rest. It's interesting, I don't have time to read uh, the rest of Mark uh, chapter three, but if you look at what happens right after this story, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day. And fascinatingly enough, most of the healings that happen occur on the Sabbath day for Jesus. Now, that could be coincidence. It could just be like, that's when all the people were there and that's when it made sense. But I actually don't think it's coincidence. I think that there's a connection between Jesus healing people on the Sabbath and the gift that Sabbath is to us. Sabbath is a day for healing. It's a day where we get to open ourselves up fully to each other, fully to God, and we get to cease from our labor and rest and worship. So, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? What's the application? Here it is. Practice taking a Sabbath. Just practice taking a Sabbath. Some of you are like, okay, I'll do one. No, no, I mean like practice taking a Sabbath every week. Every week, build in a 24-hour period. And I use the word practice intentionally because this is more like learning the piano than it is like microwaving a burrito, right? My wife and I have done this for, for like several months now. Every week we're doing the Sabbath and every single time we do it, we're like, okay, next Sabbath we're not going to do this. We're going to try this better. That didn't really feel like rest and that was a little bit, you know, let's change this. Every single time we're having mental notes of how we can better prepare and engage a day of Sabbath. When should you do this? Whenever you want. It doesn't matter. There's no certain day. People try to make that case. Any day. The, the rhythm is work six days, rest for one. So for my family, what we do is a Friday night dinner. And at Friday night, we'll light two candles. One candle represents uh, the command to remember the Sabbath. And that's in itself, some of you, like this is the command that you need to embrace today, just to remember it. Remember it. Remember it. Remember it. So we light a candle to remember the Sabbath. We light another candle to observe the, the command to observe the Sabbath. We let one of our kids do that, and then one of our ki the other kids will blow the candles out. My wife will pray for us. She will invite the Holy Spirit to come and inhabit our Sabbath. She'll invite the Spirit to come and just give us the ability to open ourselves up fully to God. I will read a psalm over our family, and then we'll sing a song. Usually we have a great bottle of wine, and by the end of Sabbath, that bottle of wine's over. It's done. It's been knocked out, and we just enjoy delicious food. We enjoy each other. And whatever is restful and worshipful, we say yes to and we do. And it's a blast. Like, we don't have a lot of food rules in my house around Sabbath, so it's like, can I have another piece of candy? Yeah, it's Sabbath, that's fine. You know, we have cinnamon rolls every morning on Sabbath, every Sabbath morning, because I want my kids to, like, every time they smell cinnamon rolls, be like, oh, Sabbath, you know? And now it's crazy. Like, seriously, every night before bed, Evie or Eleanor is like, it's tomorrow Sabbath? No, we just had Sabbath. Like, 
We're literally, Sabbath was today. You have six more days before we can have this conversation, you know? They just love it. It's so amazing. They're like, man, this is great. And I think back to my mom and dad were amazing. My parents are incredible. I love them to death. We never had a Sabbath growing up. We never had this. And I just think, what a gift to be able to do this with your roommates, with your friends, with your family. God wants you to do this. He actually wants you to do this. What do you do on the Sabbath? Whatever's restful and worshipful. You just do whatever you want that's restful and worshipful, but really fight to have both of those things together. In Jewish communities, like, uh, actually one of the commands was like, if you're married, you have to have sex on the Sabbath, right? So it's like, yeah, do that, you know? And um, some of you are like, oh, I haven't listened to anything you've said this whole time, but now I'm like, I'm all about the Sabbath. We should try the Sabbath. We should try it. Did you hear the sermon? We should try that, right? You do whatever you want that's restful and worshipful. And if you need a helpful guide for how to do this, We've put together some best practices, some podcasts that you can listen to, some blogs, some resources, this book, and a few other resources. I think it'll be really helpful. If you want that, just email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com and request that resource. We will send that your way, and you can have this conversation with your community group, with your family, with whatever. I think it'll be really helpful. All right, so here's what I would love for you to do. Would you stand with me? Here's the crazy thing about Christianity. And this is what sets it apart, among other things, to any religion, any thought belief system in the world. Every other religion has a list of things that you do to get right with God so that you can one day achieve a place of rest. Every religion has that. Christianity flips that entirely on its head. It's a story that literally starts with rest And it's a story where our God comes in the person of Jesus Christ to the earth. And he does the work for us in our place. On the cross, he absorbs the full weight of our sin, our shame, and our guilt. He absorbs the full weight of the wrath of God in our place. Jesus on the cross cries out these words, It is finished. The work's done. There's nothing that you need to do. I have done the work. And his body was broken for us. And his blood was shed for us. Why? Why? Well, because he loves us. And not just to forgive us of our sins. That's a big deal. and We could celebrate that all day long. But Jesus died and rose again from the dead so that one day he could bring true Sabbath rest to the world. 